shooting broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello and welcome to the show. This week is a fun one because I get to explore one of my favorite topics of all time, comics, comic strips, cartoons, all in one place. Talking to Andrew Farrago, the curator of the Cartoon Art Museum in San Francisco. And if you know my previous work, you you know that I love this stuff. Fascinating Fights, still available on YouTube. Um, Check the bottom, link at the bottom of the page, find my profile. We talk about pop culture, heroes, a lot of them with a comic book history, who'd win in a fight, panel experts, explains both sides. Great show. Also, my newest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-based technologies. We look at fictional technologies and show how to make them in real life. A lot of that stuff comes from comic books, pop culture, movies. It all has that kind of world to it. Love cartoons. A lot of cartoon characters appear in this stuff. I love cartoon physics. This is right up my alley. It's odd because I can't draw to save my life. And one time, I had to save my life by drawing. Didn't work out. Luckily, I escaped. But that is how important this is to me and how dangerous it can be if you don't know how to draw. Uh, Just a heads up. So this place is great because it's actually kind of a museum. They have tons of historic pieces. I put some on my Instagram feed, the Daniel J. Glenn an arm, an original drawing of the arm of Wiley Coyote pouring Acme bird seed. Uh, just incredible stuff. And we're going to talk about cartoons. And Andrew himself is an expert. He wrote a book about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the quintessential historic book on uh, TMNT. Also, he wrote a book on the best cartoons of the 80s, right up my alley. And he's writing a book on Voltron. It's right in my wheelhouse, man. So let's get right into this with Andrew Farrago. Andrew, thank you for being on the program today. So you're the curator here. or at the Cartoon Art Museum. So this place is incredible. And from what I understand, it exists because of an endowment by Charles M. Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, right? Yeah, uh, so the the museum was originally founded back in 1984, and it was founded by uh, a publisher and comics enthusiast named Malcolm White. Uh, So he was inspired by, uh, really inspired by Mort Walker, creator of Mm. Beetle Bailey, Mm. who had founded his own International Museum of Cartoon Art. Um, Oh, he wasn't inspired by the comic strip Beetle Bailey, just by the work that Mort Walker did. Yeah, by Mort. So... Uh, Mort, um, you know, very active member of the National Cartoonist Society, uh, obviously was a huge proponent of comics as an art form. Mm-hmm. Uh, he founded his own museum in 1974, uh, I believe up in Rybrook, New York. Hmm. Uh, the museum moved around a few times to Connecticut and Florida. Uh, but anyway, uh, that inspired Malcolm, uh, and his friends here in San Francisco, um, to found their own museum in 1984. Uh, Malcolm, as, as an aside, I should mention, uh, he, was, he was in tight with all the underground cartoonists in San Francisco in the 60s. So he knew Robert Crumb, mm-hmm. uh, Trina Robbins, Spain Rodriguez, all of the San Francisco ba- uh, great San Francisco-based underground cartoonists. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm, a uh, big fan of cartoons and comics, publisher, uh, he said, it's, it's a shame that we have all this artwork and no way to share it. So he got together with his, with his friends, formed a 501c3 nonprofit. And for the first few years, the museum was what we call a museum without walls. That was their official mm. designation. Right. And they did a, they did a series of exhibitions. Um, today, we'd call them pop-up exhibitions. So he did them throughout the city. And places like the airport, libraries, universities, any place... Uh, that had a nice public space that would lend itself to displays of cartoon art. They'd set that up. Mm-hmm. And the first three years was just steady, um, you know, an awareness campaign and fundraising. And it wasn't until 1987 when Charles and Jeannie Schultz uh, gave the museum a major endowment uh, that it had its first 
uh, and I know that's that's a bit of an oxymoron. It's first permanent location, right? Here in San Francisco, right? <laughs> and we've been we've been through several permanent locations. We're in our now uh, fourth or fifth permanent location. <laughs> so, at any point, do you call them temporary locations, or is it no, is that no, a legal designation? Yeah, every every uh, if we're if we're paying rent, we call it a permanent location. Right, if it's open to the public. It's permanent. Know, it's a permanent location. Right. Um, you know, just it just means that it's. It's a venue that we have that's open to the public where we are displaying art and conducting uh, programming and other events. So now, what is included here? It's comics, comic strips, anime, um, cartoons. Yeah, what I love about the word cartoon is it's such a catch-all term. Yeah. That really does describe what we do. So we have, uh, you know, we will have exhibitions, and we've, we've had these um, during during my tenure. We've had exhibitions on political cartoons from mm. the 1800s. Uh, I'm working on an exhibition right now. Uh, our, our, next, our next exhibition coming up features an artist named Joe Mora, who was based in the Monterey area and did you know, what, I, what I would uh, basically call cowboy art. Okay. So he did a lot of early 1900s, um, first half of the 20th century, cowboy art maps, um, you know, uh, brochures, lots of, lots of great illustrations, mm-hmm. uh, that, um, you know, really, really tie into California. Right. And so we, we've done that. We've got right now, we've got a, uh, what we'd probably call a superhero exhibition featuring Jim Starlin and a lot mm-hmm. of his art, uh, inspired the, the recent wave of Marvel comics movies. Sure. Yeah. But we've also got a permanent collection display right now. Uh, featuring animation artwork, and that's hmm. everything from classic Disney art in the 20s through um, uh, anime uh, films like Akira, mm-hmm. uh, Heavy Metal, the really groundbreaking, bonkers adult right? <laughs> yeah. animation movie from about 1980. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we, we have everything, so comic strips, comic books. Uh, every every few months, a visitor is going to get a new experience here. You know what? I think in that world of comics, cartoons, and comic strips, the, the, I think the the men, the medium that doesn't get a lot of love are comic strips. I grew up with them. I grew up in Chicago, and so I remember getting the Chicago Tribune with my grandparents and taking the comic section and just reading that all the way through. And I loved it. I loved it because it was serialized. It was short form. But you know, I mean, I you know, there were some that I liked that I I couldn't keep up because they were so serialized. Like Dick Tracy, I always loved the art for that. Uh, Brenda Starr was another one that was this very obscure comic strip. But for some reason, I always wanted to know the story, but I couldn't read it enough to get the whole you know to get the whole thing. But Foxtrot, um, Peanuts, of course, Get Fuzzy was another one of my favorite ones. And I think the people are still doing this. But how is that? As newspapers are dying, how are they kind of living? You know, cartoonists are a, <laughs> they're a hardy breed, right? Uh, uh, and it's interesting. I mentioned, um, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a member of the National Cartoonist Society. So about once uh, once a year, there's a big annual gathering hmm. somewhere in the U.S. And uh, is it an undisclosed location or is it? It's it's uh, actually, parts unknown. <laughs> uh, next year's gathering is going to be actually fairly open to the public. There's going oh. to be a, a sort of a an open convention as part of it. Uh, and I believe it's in Huntington Beach, California, this oh, year, wow. this coming year. And um, yeah, it's you know it's it's sort of uh, I wouldn't say it developed as a secret society, but it's it started in New York as kind of a social club for cartoonists, like a chance for all the big comic strip artists to get together, hang out, um, smoke cigars, drink drink bourbon, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, get get away from their families for a little bit. Um, <laughs> I like but, that. You know, as as the as the demographic of comic strip creators changed, the the society changed, and it's still, uh, you know, it's still very much a social group, and uh, it's it's a professional society, and it's it's a it's a chance for uh, at least once a year for a bunch of um, professional cartoonists, and especially comic strip artists, but also uh, creators from Mad Magazine and greeting card illustrators and New Yorker cartoonists and animators and comic book artists uh, to all get together, hang out, 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because you mentioned Mad Magazine, and I love Mad Magazine. I've been a subscriber for probably 20 years, I think. My God, has it been that long? I think so. And what's weird is they just changed their whole setup. So now they've started with issue one, and I was I didn't realize they'd all moved out to D.C. in Burbank, California, from New York, where they've been for, you know, 60 years or something mm-hmm. like that. So how does, is that better having them on this on the east, in the West Coast for you? You know, it's... You know, it's it's a it's a change. It's definitely a change. But um, as you mentioned, Warner Brothers is the parent company of DC Comics, and DC uh, recently, uh, within the last few years, shifted their offices, uh, their production offices, from New York to Burbank, and that's um, you know to use. I don't I don't even know if it's a contemporary buzzword, but synergy is is part of it, so that they can be uh, headquartered near. The uh, the film industry with and the animation mm. industry, which is which is one of the driving forces of what Warner Brothers does, so it makes it makes sense to have their publishing arm DC Comics out there. Uh, Mad held on a lot, not a lot longer, at least at least a year longer than DC, uh, because its editors and a lot of its contributors were based on the East Coast, so they're out in New York, and. Finally, I think, um, you know, they made the decision it would make more sense uh, as far as all their resources, just having them all headquartered in one place. Uh, so kind of kind of reluctantly, they had to shut down the New York offices and move to Burbank. Um, but I'm, ex- I'm excited about the new direction of the magazine. I'm a, I'm a subscriber, too. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm I'm an old style guy, man. I like the old I like the old look, and I gotta tell you, it's it's that is a perfect example of everything that Warner Brothers is doing wrong with DC because it's like they're fixing everything but the problem, in my opinion. I won't go too deep into like this creative storyline, but it's like moving your offices out here isn't gonna fix the problem. Your movies still stink, you know. Moving DC <laughs> offices out here isn't gonna change the problem. It's not it's not a distance thing. It's not because there's three thousand miles between the two as your movies suck. It's because there's no good creative direction behind it and all you're doing is instead of instead of forging the road ahead and creating new paths and avenues you're just copying what's already being done um and you know the history of marvel versus dc is fraught with them just copying each other but for a long time dc's been in the pack behind them and just chasing their tails trying to keep up so i'm a little disappointed i think the history behind that was actually one of their selling points um so i'm 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 a little sad to see them move out to dc as much as i love having them closer to me mm-hmm. you know i'm a fan but um i'm i'm kind of in the minority on that i think uh, in personal opinion yeah it's it's um you know it's it's a it's a change it's absolutely a change uh but um you know, Bill Morrison is the new uh, editor-in-chief at Mad Magazine, and I've known him for a long time, and I know um, there are hardly, there, there are a few bigger Mad fans on the planet than Bill, and, um, you know, I think, I think um, they knew, they, they, like all print publishing, um, they looked at the numbers, they were stagnant, they were declining, uh, and... You know, one one way or the other, one way or the other, they needed to shake things up. So, Mad had recently switched uh, from being published twelve times a year to six times a year, uh, and that's, you know, that's that's not that's not the sign of, you know, a very healthy. Well, that was in two thousand eight, though. There were a lot yeah. of things going wrong in two thousand eight. I mean, because they had just moved to color from black and white at the same time that the market tanked, and then they couldn't afford to keeping it in color and also publishing it 12 times a year. So that's not really, I mean, that's that, that's a sign of the times, and that was also 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. And my, my, you shake up the right things, not the wrong things. Just don't change just to change. Yeah. You know, it's that's the problem. But I just think that's a problem all over the all over the place. So, how did you? Obviously, we're both passionate about this thing. How did you get into comics? How did you find your way uh, into loving this medium? Uh, I go, <laughs> I go way back. I can't remember a time I wasn't into comics. Um, you know, the the earliest drawings that, um, you know, that that my parents saved that I drew were uh, characters like Batman and Popeye and and Snoopy. Uh, which you know is now my day job, which is exciting. Do you have any of that original artwork? I bet it's worth. I bet it's skyrocketed. Uh, in I value. do. I do. I'm, I'm planning. Uh, planning a retrospective <laughs> here. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, as far back as I could remember, um, 
you know, I, I was a Sesame Street kid, so I got exposed to animation there. Yeah. And uh, my older brothers were, um, they weren't really comic book collectors. They were like, like lots of 70s kids, casual buyers of comic books. They would pick up, uh, you know, what, whatever was in the TV shows or movies that they liked. So Star Wars and Hulk and Spider-Man and Batman, whoever had, a, uh, you know, a cool movie or TV show or cartoon at the time. Uh, so between those and the, the Peanuts paperback books that they had hmm. sitting around. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents were always newspaper subscribers. So, Can you tell, just for the audience, what a newspaper is for those who don't quite remember what those are? Well, that's, that's funny. Uh, I, uh, in, my, in my capacity as curator, curator at the museum, uh, I deal with school groups a lot, and I have to give... Um, frequently give tours to school groups, and that's one of the first questions I ask is, <laughs> how many of you, uh, you know, read comics in the newspaper, or how many of your yeah. parents are newspaper subscribers? And now that, um, now that the parents are typically my generation, and I'm I'm not a newspaper subscriber myself, uh, you know, the answer is almost almost none of them. Almost none of them read comics in the newspaper except for and this is this is my case too when you're when you're visiting your parents when you're right uh visiting that older generation uh who still gets the newspaper delivered to their home every day yeah um but you know there there are a lot of positive things and one of the big things i i've seen is they still know calvin and Hobbes. they still mm. know um mutts is a very popular script mm. by patrick mcdonald uh, that's big with kids. Foxtrot, um, Peanuts, they still know the characters. And this is actually uh, because of school libraries and public libraries. Mm. So when I was growing up, my school library and my, my hometown library had um, very few books of comics available on the shelves, like maybe maybe one Doonesbury collection because it was political and educational mm. enough that they could justify it. And when I was um, when I was in middle school, that's when the Garfield comic strip collection started really taking off. And that was those were topping regularly topping the bestseller lists until they changed the rules so that they couldn't um, so you didn't have 10 Garfield books crowding out everything oh, right, else on, yeah. the, on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> uh, so Garfield was a top 10 of the New York Times bestseller list? Garfield, a lot of us, a lot of us forget Garfield was just an absolute blockbuster in the early 80s. And at my, at my school library, you had to sign up weeks in advance to <laughs> make a reservation, <laughs> and you had to wait for... These books to circulate, come back, and right. eventually you had your turn to take this Carfield strip book home. Uh, but kids are still, and you know, you, you laugh, but unbelievable. Uh, this is this is why, you know, this is this is why Jim Davis um, probably falls into that genius category. Is you know, become at some point um, in your comics readership, you start dismissing Garfield, and you say, well, that. That was fun when I was eight, but it's not, it's not cool anymore, and I'm gonna pick on it. But um, there are always new eight-year-olds coming up, and I right. meet eight-year-olds all the time, and they all love Garfield, and it's exactly the comic strip they want. It's the it's their gateway to other comics right. in a lot of ways, and that audience is always replenishing itself. Even as we get fewer newspapers and circulation goes down, Garfield endures that's that's actually you're asking about newspaper circulation and garfield endures that's a great quote for i think everything pretty much but you're yeah you're talking about newspaper circulation and that's when i had that digression about the national cartoonist society yeah but um yeah cartoonists i'd say for the most part they're they're embracing technology they are working with there's some very talented editors at, at their syndicates and the, the syndicates are basically responsible for publishing and distribution and there's some very forward-thinking editors who are working with them and making sure um, you know if kids and if adults too if they aren't reading these comics in the newspaper let's make sure they're reading them online let's make sure they subscribe to our digital um, 
and this there, there's cool stuff available now like you can you can basically build your own newspaper page through hmm. um you know sites like gocomics.com uh, you can go there you can pick your favorites you can make sure you don't miss them um they'll recommend other comics to you based on what you're reading uh they're more publishing opportunities now i mentioned garfield and garfield kind of dominated um you know the strip the comic strip book collections in the 80s but um that paved the way for books like calvin and Hobbes, which um kids today still absolutely love calvin and Hobbes, and it is because of their school library so it's mm. a combination of their parents recommending it to them um and watterson uh, another genius cartoonist uh he didn't put too many topical references in there kids might be a little bit thrown by the mention of vcrs or big boxy tvs but right. <laughs> um there's not a lot in that strip that ties it to uh from the mid 80s to the mid 90s calvin and Hobbes is you know it, it i think it's also that perfect thing that kind of hits right into that childhood and and what I love about what you just said is that it's the thing I've always said about comedy for you know for anyone, you, you it's the the thing that makes the Dick Van Dyke show you know people can laugh at that reference but that you can watch those episodes today and they're still funny because they're universally funny, having things that are so topical dates it immediately you put a timestamp on it and then in in thirty days it's not even relevant anymore mm-hmm. and I think that that's the key to a lot of this enduring stuff although it is funny to see a mention of. Um, <laughs> Uh, to see a mention of VCRs and TVs. I mean, it is fun. I mean, it's one of the things I loved, um, awkward segue here, but this is a great train of thought. It's one of the things I loved about cartoons in the 80s was that like you would find these great cartoons and people would put them on VCRs, you know, VHS tape, and they would keep the commercials. And that's actually one of the fun things I like looking on YouTube for are the commercials that people kept from the 80s in between like Muppet Babies or, you know, whatever cartoon or He-Man or whatever it was. That's the stuff I love. Um, but, car- you know, you wrote a book about cartoons. Uh, best, uh, what's, what's the title of the book? Okay, uh, totally Awesome. Totally Awesome, that's the, right. The Greatest Cartoons of the 80s. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, feel, it feels self-serving. It feels like I picked that title so that I would have Totally Awesome in parentheses next right. to my name. Right, right, right. Until the end of time. But, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, this is, um, prior to that, I'd written a book on the history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, mm-hmm. and uh, my editor suggested, um, you know, he said, let's, let's, let's expand on that, let's look at uh, other cartoons from the 80s, and so I made, I made a wish list of probably about 30 cartoons that I, I would like to write about, and we, we whittled that down, and... Um, you know, I made sure it's, it's, it's a personal list. So it's, mm-hmm. it's cartoons that I watched and grew up on. I didn't want to go in and start completely from scratch on a show that I didn't know or didn't care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think that shows in the book I had, I tracked down as many, uh, producers and voice actors and animators and writers as I could. And, you know, I got to ask them both as a historian and a fan to tell, right. uh, to share their stories about these shows. And, um, you know, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was fun finding out, um, you know, was it, was it a labor of love for them? Was it a personal thing? Was it a job? Was it a mm-hmm. mandate from the toy company to just sure. push product? Uh, and it was, it was a mix. Like, right. Uh, talking to... Uh, some of the producers on Muppet Babies, they talked about um, when Jim Henson explained Fraggle Rock uh-huh. to them, uh, he really did think it was a show that was going to save the world. Like, just, uh, he was very idealistic. It was going to be uh, broadcast in different languages worldwide, and it was going to bring um, kids together and show, you know, show everybody that we have more in common mm-hmm. than not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, he went about that with really high ideals mm-hmm. and some of these other shows I talked to people and it was basically like, you know, Mattel sends them a box and says, here, you need to put all of this into the next episode, whether it makes sense or not. 
Uh, yeah, recycle as much footage as you can from old episodes, but make sure you do some new drawings of this thing because it's going to be on shelves uh, this fall. I feel like you're talking about He-Man because one of the most disappointing things I ever learned was that He-Man, the cartoon, was only created to sell action figures. Um, is that correct? And if it is, uh, how devastating was that to you to learn that news? Well, that's uh, that's that's Ronald Reagan's legacy <laughs> in a lot of ways. Is Wait, what? Yeah, oh. uh, you know, it, it's it's it sounds like a conspiracy when I say. Yeah, that. how did Ronald, what did Ronald Reagan have to do with He Man? Uh, so he um, Reagan deregulated the FCC, and so a lot mm. of um, there were, there were changes to um, broadcasting, especially relating to kids programming, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. One of the one of the big roles that changed was um, prior to exactly when He Man started, <laughs> coincident not coincidentally, uh, there were firm regulations against creating television shows specifically based on a toy line. All right, AKA a thirty minute commercial. Yeah, you could with commercials in yeah. between. <laughs> you could obviously go the other route. You could have a show that you introduced, and then oh hey, there happens to be some merchandise. Tying into your favorite show, right, right. Uh, but they, you know, they they wanted to claim they had some kind of ethical standards there and say we can't <laughs> we can't have a toy company originate the show, right. Uh, but as soon as I think the second that this law was changed, the floodgates opened and uh, film studios like Filmation, uh, animation studios like Filmation were ready to jump in and. Um, you know, they, they had contact at companies like Mattel, and they said, "Well, what what can we do together now that the now that the now that we're in the wild west? What can we do?" Sure. And um, you know, it was it was the kind of, it it profited. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was beneficial to both uh, sides of that. The toy companies uh, couldn't keep their toys in stock. Um, the uh, animation studios had contracts; they were able to employ people. Uh, you know, the people who worked at Filmation, they said, yes, it was, um, you know, it wasn't the biggest budget production. They were encouraged to reuse footage and recycle right. it and be as cost effective as possible. That's why you get you get extended transformation sec- uh, sequences and cartoons that are repeated every single episode. Uh, Prince right. Adam might raise his sword and change into He-Man twice or three times during an episode. <laughs> Cut down on the amount of new animation you need, right. but uh, but the animators I've spoken to, um, you know, they loved their boss. They loved the fact that um, Lou Scheimer, who who ran Filmation, um, he was thrilled when programs like He Man came along because he could employ people year round, mm-hmm. uh, and that wasn't that really wasn't the case in animation as a, as a rule. Like you would you would work for. You'd work on contract, you would do your run of episodes, and then you'd have to scramble for more work somewhere else. Uh, but He-Man allowed them to keep production going year-round. Uh, that led into She-Ra, uh, He-Man's sister. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm <laughs> uh, familiar. Yeah, so, um, yeah. So even, you know, again, even, even the most potentially cynical toy-driven shows, they connected with kids, uh, and they... You know, they helped animators sure. work. And, and some of those some of those animators went on to bigger and better things. Like Paul Dini right. got his start on He Man and he went on to be the driving force behind Batman, the animated series, right, and a lot right. of um, popular DC superhero shows. And right. J.M. Straczynski, who was write, a writer for She Ra, uh, created the TV show Babylon Five and had a successful comic book writing career and some of the best com- some of the yeah. best superhero comics that I think even the show Heroes was based on mm-hmm. um, work he did Supreme Power and Rising Stars were both yeah, he kind of took from both Sense of those recently for Netflix and the, wrote a great stri- script writing book as well he's the I, real, I like the real him. Ghostbusters cartoon was largely uh, him as the as the guiding force behind that that I didn't know yeah. well so there's a couple things I want to get into we're, we're, we're hitting two tangents I want to talk about <laughs> first of all uh, I want to stick on He-Man just for a little bit. I want to pick on him a little bit. Um, because when you, as an adult, like when I was a kid, I liked He-Man. But as an adult, when you go back, you realize just how corny those shows really are. 
and kind of how nonsensical in a way. And also like how carbon copy She-Ra is from He-Man because it's just like Eternia and Endora. It's, you know, they're, they're basically the same villains except with just different, you know, there's, there's nothing really creative about it. Um, which, which I would imagine that you as a curator of a place here, art, I would hardly call He-Man art. I mean, that is like the epitome of like corporate shilling. Um, I will allow you to respond, then I want to move on to Ghostbusters mm-hmm. if you want to mention that. You know, there's, um, I'd say even, even the most corporate, again, cynical uh, cartoon, there's, there's a degree of artistry and skill that has to go into it. So uh, if He-Man had been just still pictures wiggled back and forth on a, in front of a camera, uh, you know, someone, someone still has to come up with the character. Someone has to uh, put lines on paper. Uh, so there is there's an artistry to that, and you know it's it's art in the sense that it it did connect with people. Yeah, and I mean South Park is just construction paper. I mean you know their first episode was construction paper. You know I mean yeah. they had a really good thought behind it. What's interesting about He Man is you know it started off as this corporate shield, basically as you're talking about they're mandated what to say to sell store uh, to sell toys. But then this comic book line came down a couple years ago, which was actually really interesting and almost games of Game of Thrones esque, where you have they really kind of there was some super fan who, who must have gotten into this. I don't actually know the history behind it. All I know is when someone recommended the comic book line to me, and I was kind of enthralled by just how intricate they made all the races and all the people and all the interactions and the connection between the two worlds. I was pretty impressed. It's yeah, that's that's a that's a market too. Is the the uh you know, quote unquote, grown up version of, hmm. uh, you know, things, things that we grew up on as kids. Right. And, um, that's been done with varying degrees of success. Um, you know, Thundercats is one that I can mention that they did right. a, um, they did a more adult version of it, um, probably about seven years ago and it didn't quite catch on. And then the, uh, you know, the, what would you call them? The copyright holders <laughs> uh, are going back to the well and they're doing uh, kind of a, you know, it's kind of a Steven Universe inspired, mm. or at least as far as the, the look of the show goes. It's more of a wacky, kid-friendly, mm. zany version of Thundercats that's coming up. Right. Uh, so that's, you know, that's I, I, it's a lot of fun for me. Like, I know people who... Um, just wail and moan and they're just uh, they insist that their childhood memories are just being destroyed and and uh, that they're they're salting the ground after they uh, you know nuke, nuke it from orbit sure but, right um, you know these these 80s cartoons will always be there um, I should mention yeah um, I'll mention what I'm working on right now is a, is a complete history of Voltron oh okay and uh, the current show that's running on Netflix, uh, I absolutely love it. And what I love about that is that seems like what we're watching on screen now is what I remember the '80s cartoon being. Mm-hmm. Um, so to explain that, when I watch, when I go back and watch the '80s cartoon uh, on DVD, I see like, okay, this was this was a uh, cartoon cobbled together from you know, the original Japanese series, and they had to uh, edit out any violence and anything mm-hmm. objectionable, any cultural references that didn't make sense. They had to change the plot line entirely in some cases. You know, but we, we absolutely loved it uh, when we grew up on it. And I think the Netflix show that's being done now is as cool and fun, as exciting as we remember that 80s cartoon being. Hmm. Um, and the people who are upset that Thundercats now looks like it's aimed at eight-year-olds are forgetting that they were eight years old when they were watching that original cartoon. So the, yeah. the, old, the old stuff will always be there. Um, you can revisit it. And, you know, and this, this is true with the, the vocal, but you know, really inconsequential backlash against the new She-Ra cartoon that's been announced. Right. Is, 
you know, you're probably not who the uh, the studio is going for. You're probably Netflix. Me personally, or you mean the people who are upset? The people who are upset, like yeah. They, if you if you like it, great, but it's it's the next generation that they're hoping right. is going to latch onto this. If you're right. and adults not going to watch it every single week and sit down and buy the buy the action figures and yeah. not as a whole. Yeah, if I you know and I you know I wrote a I wrote a chapter on Shira in my book. I love the I love the original show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but if the new one appeals to me, that's great. If it doesn't. Um, you know, I'd I'd much rather have a, a new She-Ra show that, um, you know, my ten year old niece is gonna love mm-hmm. than 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 one that I'm gonna love. Right. And that's maybe maybe it's, that's crazy talk, but yeah, it is that is crazy talk. Um, but it's very mature and adult. I I respect that. You know, so I'm a, you, I'm a professional. You are a professional. You are nothing else professional. So let me ask you a quick question. This is self promoting for myself, but I you know I which is a totally redundant sentence, but I. I do a show called Fascinating Fights. We did Voltron versus Optimus Prime. Um, really quickly, who do you think would win in that fight? <sighs> Voltron versus Optimus Prime. Hmm. I will tell you, the episode does have incredible arguments on both sides, mostly led by myself. But there, there's a lot of really cool, intricate parts of this of this matchup. Um, you got five seconds. Who is it? All right. You know, I, I will just say that... Um We've seen we've seen Optimus Prime go down pretty hard. If you watch Transformers the movie, yeah, uh, he's he's not invulnerable, right? Um, so I I think you know if Voltron were to sit down and watch Transformers the movie and kind of study yeah, that, right? And if if Optimus Prime had the same advantage of watching Voltron, I think um, you know Voltron might have the edge there. That, wow, that blazing sword! Was, wow. All right. Well, I will. I will agree to disagree. But you can have that. If you are writing a book, you better mention this in that book and lay out your argument, and it better be extremely, incredibly convincing. Chapter eight. Chapter eight. Yes. And you feel free to call me. Uh, they call me the analytical mastermind. Happy to help out. Uh, so now let's talk about the Ghostbusters because not only did I love the movie, um, I love the cartoons. There were two of them. I said cartoons because there was an original, I believe, filmation mm-hmm. Ghostbusters. And then the movie came out, and they wanted to make a cartoon series also called Ghostbusters, but they couldn't because this other filmation one was out, so they called it The Real Ghostbusters, which was the dumbest title ever. Mm -hmm. And that show was so different than the movie. However, I did love it. Um, But let's talk about it. Can you talk to me about the battle between the rights for the name Ghostbusters? Okay. Yeah, I'll do the... (laughs) This Give me Cliff is, Notes version, right? This is covered in my book, but I'll, I'll, I'll do perfect. the... Perfect. Uh, <laughs> Which book is it? Pop? Let's give you a quick promo. Yeah, this is, the, uh, yeah, totally awesome. Totally the awesome. greatest <laughs> cartoons of the 80s. Awesome. Okay, great, great. Okay, but, um, yeah, so when the um, when the movie came about, uh, so Dan Aykroyd and uh, Harold Ramis uh, put together the movie, and they came up with the name Ghostbusters... Uh, presumably independently, without without any knowledge of this pre-existing filmation live-action TV series, right? Because it was live-action first, called, the, the, Go- called right. the Ghostbusters, and the show, uh, you know, it didn't have much of an impact. It was, you know, a lo- the live-action shows on Saturday mornings were uh, those were, those were always scheduled around lunchtime, so that mm. was around the time kids are going finally kicked out of the house by their parents. So. Didn't find much of an audience. It was a one. What also show. had a gorilla on the show, which yeah. is weird to have a live action with a gorilla as one of the main characters. Yeah, Larry Storch from F Troop, who, you know, I don't, I don't know that he was huge with the the kid demographic in the seventies, <laughs> but um, the show the show came and went, mm. and uh, so then, uh, yeah, uh, the movie came about in the eighties. There was some talk once they once they found out. Um, Pretty far along in the production, once they found out that there was this this prior claim on the show from Filmation, uh, they opted rather rather than rebrand everything, come up with a different name because it's it's just such a perfect name. They said let's let's come up with a settlement with Filmation, uh, and so the settlement was Filmation can do a cartoon called Ghostbusters, but it couldn't have anything. It couldn't be based on. Uh, the movie couldn't be based on the Dan Aykroyd, uh, Bill Murray film. 
it would be really hard to convert that and even make that like because yeah. the TV show and the cartoon are nothing like the movie at all. Yeah. So they got they got permit. Uh, so they worked out this bizarre settlement. So Filmation got to do a cartoon called Ghostbusters, but it had to be based on their original 1970s show. Uh-huh. And that really paled in comparison to what the cartoon they got labeled as the real Ghostbusters, which, you know, that's, that's a dig. At, I don't think such an F you to like, <laughs> dig uh, doing the real Ghostbusters. Right. Which and, it wasn't though, because they were the real ghosts. The, the yeah. filmation ones, the real Ghostbusters. Yeah. But you know, given, given a choice, no kid, uh, <laughs> no, no kid picked the, the filmation Ghostbusters. I, I did. I actually love the filmation yeah. one. I, I'm one of the few. I did yeah. actually like it. And that lasted, you know, it lasted, it was, it was a curiosity. It lasted one season. Right. Yeah. Real Ghostbusters lasted, uh, at least seven seasons. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. I talked to, um, um, great guy, Michael Gross, who was, um, he was the art director for National Lampoon. He's really the one who put that on the map. He was in Family Ties too and Tremors. Different, different Michael Gross. Different Michael yeah. Gross, okay. Uh, but this, yeah, this this Michael Gross, um, you know, I, I talked to him. He passed away bef- uh, between the time I interviewed him and when the book was published. Hmm. Uh, but he was responsible for the art direction of National Lampoon and really, you know, one of the unsung heroes of, of American humor, I'd say, in the last, like, uh, from the 70s onward. Uh, but he was he's one of the producers of Ghostbusters and he basically said they, they really didn't have any interest in doing a cartoon but uh, the studio really leaned on them and said you know you're you're for one thing you're gonna be you're leaving a lot of money on the table if you don't do this cartoon mm. and also filmation is moving ahead with their cartoon no matter what so if we're not out there um, that's you know they're gonna seize the name Ghostbusters, and we really don't want that. So, you know, fortunately, I mean, everything everything came together in such a, a great way. They um, they tapped uh, J.M. Straczynski as the lead writer mm. of the show. Um, Gross, Gross gave him a lot of credit, had had high praise for him. He mm. said that's really, um, you know, he's he was really the guiding spirit of the show. Um, Straczynski, I got to talk to him uh, for the book, and um, he mentioned that he he watched Ghostbusters on VHS uh, pretty much once a week just to make sure that he was. Wow. Um, and I don't I don't know if that even puts him in the in the top five thousand uh, as far as peop- how many times people have viewed the original Ghostbusters. Right. Yeah. But while he was working on the show, he watched it every week so that he had the dialogue and the characters down. Wow. The show's so different than the movie. That's interesting. I mean, it's, it's they they made a they made a conscious decision to um, partly partly because of expense and also because they wanted the artistic freedom. They made a conscious decision not to go with the likenesses of the actors. Right. Not not at all. Because like Egon has like long, like a blonde mullet. Yeah. So they they made their own versions of the characters. They gave them. Uh, like a good superhero team, they gave them different colored outfits. Right, yeah, right. Uh, tell them apart easily from a distance. Uh, they gave them, you know, the, the over-the-top cartoony voices. Yeah. Uh, you know, although Bill Murray eventually saw the show and asked why they weren't uh, trying to do a better impression, <laughs> impression of him. So that right. actually did lead to a, uh, a change in the voice cast after a few seasons. Hmm. Um, Arsenio Hall was actually... Uh, one of the first, uh, he was part of the original cast of the cartoon show. Ah. Oh. Um, but had to leave when his own career took off, and he just couldn't juggle. I didn't know that. Recording studio time. With was he Winston? I assume. Yeah. Yeah. With the Arsenio. Wow. All show. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, they they turned they turned that. I think it's a comic book series now, or was. Um, and they turned that into an incredible board game. If you've never played it, the Ghostbusters board game is really fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, our friends at I, I think our friends at IDW are yep. responsible for that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's great. Uh, Cryptozoic I think also put together put together the game. So let's talk. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Looney Tunes characters because I love the Looney Tunes. Um, you've written a lot about them, so you know quite a bit about the history. Who is your favorite character and why? You know, I'd have to say. 
Daffy Duck just hmm. edges out Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny might be my favorite character, but I think Daffy Duck has the funnier cartoons. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Who's number three? Uh, number three, uh, one of my sentimental favorites has to be Foghorn Leghorn, which is okay. my, my dad's favorite. And uh, he grew up, um, you know, he grew up in an era when, yeah, that, that pre-TV era where if he wanted to see Looney Tunes, he had to go to the movie theater, you know, plunk down his dime and uh, see them at the local theater. And if he was really lucky, there would be two cartoons playing that week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Foghorn Leghorn was his favorite. He always did Foghorn Leghorn imitations growing up. Uh, so he's, he's a sentimental favorite. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because by the time I was a kid, uh, you know, Looney Tunes had a firm foothold on Saturday morning. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, either they shifted networks a few times so they'd either be on CBS or ABC for an hour hour and a half right. every Saturday morning uh, but my local one of my local syndicated stations had them uh, in the morning in the afternoon uh, when TBS and TNT branched out you could watch them um, you know you could, you could you could pretty easily watch four or five hours of Looney Tunes a day wow. and <laughs> You know, now uh, when I was when I was writing my Looney Tunes book, the the Looney Tunes Treasury, um, you know, I had I had DVDs on my bookshelf that I could refer to, mm-hmm. and now anybody with a smartphone can pull up which at like the very sp- the specific Looney Tunes cartoon they want to watch on command. So it's yeah, it's it's quite a change from appointment viewing where once a week you could see whichever cartoon the studio <laughs> right yeah packaged with whatever was playing at your local theater yeah yeah it's so different because i'm doing um uh i've got another show called fascinating gadgets gizmos and gear-based technologies another sh- self-promotion uh, and so we take um basically fictional technology and explain it using academic experts and scientists how we can make it in real life and looney tunes is one of my favorites and so we're doing a panel about the acme product catalog Mm -hmm. so wiley coyote has always been one of my favorites and i've been watching wiley coyote cartoons just on a loop like ad nauseum Mm -hmm. and it's pretty crazy like where where my mind goes with him because I think he's really a misunderstood guy, and I think he's actually really incredibly intelligent. And I think the cartoon world is really the evil person in that. Not so much the Roadrunner, who's kind of a jerk, but the fact that you can never predict cartoon physics. I always feel really bad for him. And what's funny about Looney Tunes cartoons is they, you know, habitually take uh, you know predator and prey and just roll reverse, mm-hmm. and so you have you know Bugs Bunny who's outsmarting the hunter all the time, you know, and it's you know I feel really bad because they you know especially with Tom and Jerry, uh, Tom and, and that's not Looney Tunes obviously, but Tom and Jerry is the worst for me because obviously you know you got Jerry and Tom to me they're evenly pitted against each other like they're pretty evenly matched. But Jerry is such an a hole. Like mm-hmm. I don't know how anyone is a Jerry fan. I've always been pro Tom. Uh, how do you fall on that? On the on the way things are kind of matched up in those two worlds. You know, I think uh, Chuck Jones had some firm ground rules on some of these characters. Mm-hmm. And right, that's true. You know, to gain the audience sympathy, the key is that um, your protagonist really shouldn't be the instigator. So Bugs Bunny. Um, you know, Bugs Bunny gives back <laughs> um, mm. probably typ- typically, you know, he gives back a lot more than he receives as far as um, abuse and, and danger mm. and everything. Um, but it's it's always it's it's self-defense. So he's up against someone like uh, Elmer Fudd or Yosemite Sam. Uh, and the coyote occasionally. Yeah who are, you know, they're the instigators. They're trying to force him out of his home or murder him, eat him. <laughs> right, yeah. So, you know, whatever, Which is no whatever laughing he, matter. Whatever he doles way. out in response, that's, that's fair game. And if you watch the Roadrunner cartoons, the Roadrunner, um, he's really just trying to survive. He's just, he's just in self-defense mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, the threat of being eaten that causes him to... Um, he doesn't even he doesn't even really lash out so much as he just reacts and tries to 
going about his business. Well, you know what's funny with that is when you look at, and I've watched a lot of Roadrunner cartoons, I would say, not knowing at all what you did for research for this, I may have watched more hours of Wiley Coyote than you have, but, um, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So I'll put that on as a caveat. However, when it comes to those cartoons, the fascinating part to me is the Roadrunner almost does nothing. I mean, he's really, he is in self-defense mode, but he doesn't actually have to do anything but run fast. He's never really counterbalancing any of the gadgets. He's never, they're failing on their own, you know, the, the, the miscalculations. It's the physics, it's the world that is beating Wile E. Coyote back, and the Roadrunner just gets to go upon, go upon his or her daily existence. Yeah. So that's a kind of a unique um, role, I think. Yeah, the, the Roadrunner is just pure impulse. There's not even... Um, yeah, self-defense is probably stretching it because the Roadrunner stops, eats, mm-hmm. uh, maybe takes some... Um, road, in, in a lot of ways, Roadrunner is actually like a real bird. Like just, just, takes, right. just takes action right. in the, hey, I noticed this uh, anvil or uh, this tunnel painted on the wall, this, this piece of string, this, this right. dynamite. Um, you know, take, takes notice probably the same as a, as a real Roadrunner. Right. Would and then and then tries to flee the scene. Yeah, because I mean, it just everything works out for him. You know, even with the painted walls, like he should smash through it. Well, the physics of the world allow him to go through it, and while the coyote not to go through it. Um, it just blows my mind how how twisted it all is against him. But, you know, if we lived in a Roger Rabbit-style world, I think Wiley Cody would be extraordinarily dangerous, if you ask me. Uh, if he really had the real physics to, to go with. Um, that's my personal thought. And I'm, 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 you know, I think Acme is kind of this forerunner to Amazon where you can get literally <laughs> anything. Um, you know, they probably, they probably perfected that drone delivery service because uh, they... They can pinpoint him about 30 seconds after he, he puts his check in the mailbox. <laughs> right, box. right. Um, you know, Chuck, Chuck Jones was a visionary. He was. No, he was. And, you know, but the thing about Roadrunner is that he always sticks his tongue out, and he's got to be cocky, right? That's why he's never gotten my sympathy. He's always got to be cocky. And with those rules, that's what's funny about Jerry is Jerry's often the instigator. There are times when Tom's just hanging out, right? He's not, he's not worried about Jerry. He's doing whatever. Or he's chasing girls or whatever he's occupied with. And then Jerry pops on the scene, it bored, I don't know what his deal is, really, um, but he just goes after Tom for no reason, and then Tom has to react, but because of the cartoon world, he always gets the worst of it. That's why I don't like Jerry, he's a, he's a jerk. Tom's, Tom's job is to keep the house mouse-free, and if, you know, if, if Jerry respected that, if Jerry didn't push it, right. if, he just, if, he, if he contented himself with the amount of reasonable amount of cheese for a mouse to take <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. this box. <laughs> right. You know, they could probably have a very copacetic, uh, easygoing... Mutually beneficial in some ways. But he's got He's always got to eat a whole turkey or, or something that's, you know, obviously, uh, obviously the family that lives in the house is going to notice if, right. you know, an entire pizza goes missing. Right. That's... that's, that's yeah, that's, that's a lack of respect. I completely agree, and that's why I don't like Jerry. I'm going on records officially saying I've never liked Jerry. Uh, I've always been on Team Tom. So we love cartoons. Obviously, you and I share this love of cartoons, and it is kind of sad that the, you know, it used to be where you would get up, and you had to get up really early, uh, way earlier than I could get up, 5.30 sometimes a.m., to watch these things on Saturday morning. But that was when the primo cartoons were. Mm-hmm. That era's over. That's gone. You can't really, it doesn't happen like that. What were the reasons? What, wh- why can you not go on Saturday morning and watch these awesome cartoons anymore? Well, you know, the, the short answer for these questions is always money. So, mm. Wow, okay. Um, you know, networks, uh, and Saturday morning took off because, again, I mentioned, I mentioned federal regulations. So mm-hmm. uh, networks had to provide a certain amount of um, educational, and mm-hmm. that, you know, that's a broad term. <laughs> right. Uh, educational programming geared toward children. Uh, and, and children's programming in general. Um, so in the 80s, for example, that allowed um, syndicates to flourish with, with shows, syndicated shows like Transformers, G.I. Joe, Voltron, mm-hmm. um, because that, that counted toward a, uh, an individual network, uh, an individual syndicated station's um, 
total amount of kids programming that they were required okay. by law to provide each week. Okay. Um, you know, the networks, the major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, collectively decided we have to, we have to put this amount of, we have to put this certain amount of kids programming on the air. Saturday morning is when kids are home, able to watch. Mm. Uh, collectively, they decided this is this is when it makes the most sense. Let's Got all um, we'll get it out of the way Saturday morning. We don't have to do this programming the rest of the week. Um, <laughs> as the as these rules and regulations changed, uh, they weren't required to do that. Um, live action shows, um, again, whether they were technically educational or not, if you did a show like Saved by the Bell, mm-hmm. um, those were. It takes place in a school. It's clearly educational. Yeah. Uh, they pre- they it presented a moral lesson right. at the end yeah, of every right. episode, yeah, technically. Exactly. Those were cheaper to produce. They could do news programs. They could do nature programs. Um, so gradually, TV news and things like that took over because those those fit the requirements and they cost less to produce. Mm. Uh, you didn't have to bring in animation studios. and Right voice talent and toy companies and deal with all that. Uh, And also the rise of uh, cable television as, um, you know, as that became more and more pervasive and you had more options to watch cartoons throughout the week. You have kids who are busier on Saturday mornings with, you know, soccer and school groups and like a million other things. Right. Um, you know, the appointment viewing aspect of it has obviously changed with uh, streaming video. Right. So there, there are things like that that made Saturday not, um, suddenly not the only way to watch cartoons. You have entire, um, obviously, Cartoon Network, Boomerang. Uh, yeah, Disney, some, Nickelodeon, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. and, and with, with streaming video, um, DC Comics just mm. announced a whole streaming service at... Um, Right, they've got, and I think Disney is following suit. Probably Marvel will have a specific streaming portal. Right. Um, so you know, it, all all these factors, and then the changing nature of syndication as those stations got gobbled up by mm-hmm. um, you know bigger networks and bigger conglomerates. Um, all the, all these factors kind of killed. Um, that aspect of cartoon programming. Well, it's devastating. It's definitely a golden age. Um, I miss it. I wish there was more stuff like it, even if they want to try to sell me action figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have time to stick around for a f- bonus episode on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Sure. Can we talk about that? Awesome. Um, well, so let's let's talk about, uh, give the promo. What books, do you, how can people find your books? How can people find you um, online? I'm assuming you seem like a very social media guy. Yeah, uh, com. Uh, if you're a Facebook person, uh, look up Andrew Farrago Cartoons and just at Andrew Farrago on Twitter. Um, my, my day job is here at the Cartoon Art Museum, uh, so cartoonart.org is the place to go. Uh, Amazon carries all my books, so it's, if you have, my <laughs> have the correct spelling of my name down, uh, you know, just go to my Amazon author page and that keeps you up to date on everything from the Looney Tunes treasury to uh, the zombie gnome defense guide, which my wife and I co-wrote. That's (laughs) that's coming out in August. Oh, that's awesome. And I'll have links to all this stuff. I'll make sure people have the accurate links to all your social media. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me. This has been incredibly interesting and educational as well. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to check out more about this show, all of the others which are archived on the page, and to follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. This episode's going to have a lot of YouTube videos. We did some fun things with some historic art, so check it out. And at the bottom of the page, you can sign up for the newsletter. 
This is a great way to learn more about the guest, learn about upcoming topics, and just a great way to stay involved. And if you like this show, you're going to love all the other things that I do, which are available on danieljglenn.com. You can find links to my other podcasts, web series, and everything that I do. So check that out, and thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.